All righty, good to see everybody today. Happy Sunday to you. Um, grab your Bibles. We're going to turn to uh, the book of Galatians. And uh, that's where we'll be as we're looking at the topic of uh, discipline of community this morning, just for a few minutes. Galatians is going to be around 630 in the Bible underneath the, the seats. There's one down the center column, so grab that if you don't have a Bible. Use it, and, uh, and if you really don't have one, take that with you as you're leaving today. Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 25, we're going to go through all the way ch- uh, chapter 6 to verse 5. And we're going to read these verses out loud together. Uh, let's read together. Uh, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, another day that we have life in our bodies, breath in our lungs. We thank you for uh, a sun that rises above, uh, above us. Thank you for creation itself, uh, the, the miracle that it is, and this world that we uh, get to live on. Thank you for uh, our great country and the leaders that, uh, that serve us, really here in the, the, the place where we are in Northern Virginia, the D.C. area. Uh, God, we thank you for the gathering of your church. God, this is not a, a have to, it's a get to. And so, God, would you come uh, as you only can do and, and um, meet us here. God, I pray that our worship of you uh, would be natural. God, it would be something that's in us that just comes up from in us because you have given us your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would receive our worship today. More importantly, Lord God, we pray that as we open your word and you speak to us, that our ears would listen, that our hearts would be attentive, and that you would help us to obey. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so as we've begun this year, we started a series called Rhythms, and in that we're looking at spiritual disciplines, and we're almost at the end. In fact, uh, we've got two more. This, uh, this week and next week, we'll look at uh, the spiritual discipline of service, and really what we're doing in this series are looking at the, those spiritual habits, the, uh, how can we be systemic about uh, disciplining ourselves in a spiritual way, ways that we can get connected to God and stay connected to God. And we call those spiritual disciplines. Today we're going to talk about community. Uh, in, I guess, normal vernacular, it's good old fellowship, right? I mean, y'all heard of Christian fellowship. That's what we're talking about. Think about it. Community is natural. We want to, I mean, we, we want community in our families. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like we're accepted and that we're loved regardless of what we do, and, and all of us want that. But community is also biblical. Uh, it's one of those big reasons why our church exists and really why every church exists, and the Bible says it right. Uh, the, the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone, and that's our launch point. That's our, our foundation for what we're talking about when we think about 
community from a biblical perspective. Uh, the story of Genesis is that God spoke, he created, said some stuff, and it, it came to be. In fact, the refrain is for the six days of creation, uh, and God said, and then, it, you know, it, it came to be. And after he created something in each of the days of creation, here's what we are told in Scripture. God says, it was good, right? So he created, I mean, all the stuff that he created. He turned chaos into order, dark into light. He put some luminaries in the sky. He created vegetation, uh, plant life to, you know, to make it so that we could eventually eat um, stuff in the water, animals, uh, Animals that fly outside of the water, and then on the pinnacle of the creation, he created man. Um, what it tells us at the end of Genesis 1 and beginning in Genesis 2 is on the sixth day, God created the, 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 I mean the, the most important part of all the things that he would create, and that would be human beings, those of us who are sitting in this, this room right now. And he created Adam first, and we don't know how long this was, but at some point, God came, he, he said these words, Genesis 2.18, it's not good that the man should be alone. That's an interesting phrase because, remember, God had just pronounced everything up until that point was, was very good, was good, in fact. And so for the first time in history of the universe, there's something that was not good. And that thing that was not good was that a, a man, a person, was outside of a relationship. We have to ask ourselves why. I mean, did, did God make a mistake in the design of Adam? Was, was Adam his, himself, uh, was there something wrong with him? And obviously the question that we, we, we answered that in the, the, the ensuing chapters of the Bible, uh, no, Adam was good. When God made Adam, he said he was good. Adam was as God intended him to be. But here's what was not good about Adam. Adam was created and he was outside of community. See, Adam was created to reflect who God is. And who is God? God is personal, relational, multidimensional, and personality. That's who God is. And Adam by himself, all alone, can't be that way like God. That's why it was not good for Adam to be alone. Um, Adam needed community. In that same light, um, think about this. One of the prominent doctrines of the church is that God is uh, an, a, a, an eternally existing being who has always existed in community with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, we call that the Trinity. That's one of the most complex, um, complicated doctrines in all the Bible. Oh, by the way, the word Trinity doesn't even appear in our Bible, but this is what the Trinity, the doctrine, tells us. Three essentials. God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. And so in Christianity, we have a triune God. We didn't make that up. The scripture unpacks that for us in various places. And our God is co-equal, co-eternal, and he's existed forever. Our God is not a they. He's not an it. Our God is God. It's a him. We have a God who is perfect in, in a perfect relationship and in perfect community. And so when you think about God and creating uh, humanity, he didn't create Adam and pronounce that he was um, not good because he was lonely. He created Adam in his image and likeness to enjoy community with God 
but he also wanted Adam to enjoy the same communion that God himself enjoys, and that's why Adam needed a compliment. When we talk about community and relationship and connectedness, we draw all of our foundation from the Trinity. If I would tell you that a Christian needs to be in fellowship and community, it's not because you're all alone. It's because you are created in the image of God. You reflect him, and you don't rightly reflect God unless you are in the same type of community that God himself is in. God said that you were made in his image and likeness. So being outside of fellowship, uh, it's not being fully who you are. All right, so all that said, our model and our grounding for us being in community is not your family. Even if you came from an affirming family that had great fellowship and you, and you loved it. Our model and grounding for community is not your fraternity or sorority, even if it was like the best thing that you've done in all your life. Our, our model and our grounding for community is not your coworkers, even if you have the best working environment uh, that you've ever had. What's our, our, our model for community? It's God himself. Why? Because God exists in perfect community, and he made us to be like him. And so in our text, it says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. So what does God do? All right, maybe you've read the story. He creates Eve, and we don't know exactly what he did, but the Bible tells us he put Adam to sleep, like knocked him out, like gave him one of those like holes and he knocked him out. Adam's on the ground probably just for a few minutes. God opens up his body, takes a rib out. I, I don't know how many ribs I'm supposed to have. One of your doctors tell me at the end. But probably one of them is still missing. We pro- men probably have one less rib than women. I know that's not true, right? All right. All right, so God performed a miracle. He created Eve, and then he brings Eve to Adam, and the dude just, like, freaks out. So much so, this is what he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is a poem. But actually, Adam was singing here. Think about that. Perfect man, perfect song. I mean, he probably had a perfect voice, probably sounded like Luther Vandross. I mean, (laughs) can you just imagine how good he sounds singing these words uh, of praise to God, but direct him at the woman that he like instantly loved? So that's what happened. Adam sings a song. And really what he's saying here is he's saying the same words that Tom Cruise said to Renee Zegweiler uh, in Jerry Maguire, you complete me. I'm sure he like did that. I mean, it's probably a, a, just a precious moment. Um, all right. So, I mean, really, this verse is directly related to marriage, the, the, the marriage of Adam and Eve. And all of you that are married, uh, it means the same thing for you. Uh, your, God has given you a, a spouse to, to compliment you. But this has application outside of marriage uh, because of what we see in the beginning. Uh, we can't be fully ourselves just to ourselves. We need to be in relationship to do that. And that's maybe a radical statement for some of you, but, but this is the deal. This is what the Bible uh, conveys to us. We're incomplete without connection. Part of who we are will only be discovered in relationships. And for those of you that are single in the room, notice I, didn't, I did not say you will be complete when you're married, when you have a spouse. Obviously, Jesus was not married. Was he complete? Absolutely. The Apostle Paul was not married. Was he complete? Absolutely. He was who God wanted him to be for the mission that God had for him. You don't need a spouse to be complete, but you do need intimate, true, real relationships with other people. And here's why. 
you cannot, you can't see and develop the strengths that, that God wants you to have without having a community around you to, to help you do that. Some of you have weaknesses that won't be born out of you unless you have a community of people around you pointing those things out to you. You can't develop and be the person God would want you to be unless you are in community with other people. But unfortunately, that is, that's the problem, right? I mean, I mean, look around you. People are everywhere, and they are my problem. <laughs> I need to be in a relationship, but it's unfortunate that it's the relationships that I'm in that's causing me all the problems that I have, right? And of course, uh, that's why uh, this is, I mean, this is a discipline because it's hard to do but it's something that God tells us to do, people. And that brings us to our text. Um, this text in Galatians is telling us that we need to be a part of a community. Uh, it's telling us uh, of what this, this idea of community is all about. But firstly, it's telling us that there are barriers to us being in community. And we find those in verse 26 of, of chapter 5. Here's what Paul says. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Three words stick out. Conceited, provoking, and envying. And those are three barriers to us being and staying in community with other people. But they also tell us why we don't experience it. We're going to unpack these words real quick. Uh, the first barrier, conceit. Um, this is the Greek word kenodoxos. Uh, it's really two words. Kenos, meaning empty. Doxa, meaning glory. That the, the literal meaning is no way. I like the King James Version here. I don't read the King James Version very often. But the King James Version gets it right. It calls this, this word, conceit, vain glory. Someone that's vain, uh, something that's vain is, is useless. And so he's saying a person that's conceited has uh, uh, useless glory. Their thoughts about themselves. They got a big head, but they, they can't back it up. They're, they're empty. And, and in many ways, he's saying that person uh, in their mind, they got a lot going on, but really they don't matter in the grand scheme of things. They're, they're small scale. And so someone who's conceited, their opinion of themselves is basically empty and, and false. They have a false impression of who they are based upon how the world sees them. They're trying to be someone that they really are not. When we're conceited, our relationships with other people end up getting strained. Why? Because, I mean, we're... Uh, we're insecure. Conceited people feel the need to prove themselves. Conceited people are always comparing themselves to other people in a competitive kind of way. Conceited people want others to know that they're important, that they matter. But deep down, this is what they know. They're really not that special. They're actually ordinary. Let me ask you this. Have you figured out yet that you're, that you're ordinary? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put you all down, but have you come to the point where you realize that you might have some special things about you, but you're not that special. You might have some unique things about you, but that you're not that, that unique, that you're probably not going to be the president of the United States. Have you come to that realization yet? <laughs> now, there's some young people in here, and you still have opportunities. But for the most of us, I mean, we're just ordinary. Check it out. I learned this lesson real early, that I was just ordinary. I learned it in first grade. But to tell you the story, i got to back up to kindergarten. See, in kindergarten, <laughs> in kindergarten, I was the real deal. I was special. Kindergarten, I was no joke special. In, in, in North Carolina, they wouldn't skip you to a ne the next grade, but um, I, was, I was just so smart in kindergarten. They, once a week, they would take me and put me in first grade so I could just be a first grader for the day. So a year later, 
I'm in first grade, and it's just easy. I'm like, I'm like breathing, breathing through first grade. Uh, midway through, I take some kind of standard academic test, you know, one of those, one of those tests, and I got all of, I mean, I got everything right. I remember uh, the principal made a big deal about it. He called my mom. I didn't know what, what this meant, but apparently other people did because I became a big deal in first grade. <laughs> so much of a big deal that uh, I decided, you know, I'm going to milk this a little bit. And I decided in first grade I was going to take my, my, my esteem and I was going to self-declare that I had a girlfriend. And my, yes, yes, yes. And my girlfriend was the prettiest girl in the first grade, Angela Toole. Angela Toole did not know I was hurt, but she was my girlfriend. All right, so uh, I, I just started talking about that. Just started telling people. And, uh, and so one day, this girl named Sonya Bell decided she was going to call my bluff. Now, here's the deal with Sonya Bell. Sonya Bell was in kindergarten with me when I used to get popped out in the first grade, Sonya came with me because she was just as smart as I was. When I got everything right on that standard test in first grade, Sonya only missed like one or two. And Sonya and I would compete academically all the way through high school. I mean, we're still friends, still friends today. That's just kind of relationship that we had. Um, and so Sonya called my bluff on, at recess, and she went up to Angela too. was like, Jeff Toomer said that you were his, his boy, his girlfriend. Is that true? And Angela, I, I think she was just being graceful. She's like, no. <laughs> and that was it. But it got out. It got out that Jeff had said that Angela Toole was his girlfriend, and Angela Toole said, no, Jeff is not my boyfriend. My big head was deflated. <laughs> and when we got back from recess, I actually did this. I went to the bathroom, and I locked myself in the bathroom for an hour. And that's what, that's what conceit will do to you. <laughs> Come on. I recovered. <laughs> I recovered. I got another girlfriend in third grade, and I never had. I had another one in sixth grade, and then by the time I got the captain, I married my wife. So, all right, I was ours. All right, I wasn't. She was not my destiny. But here's the thing: I was I was conceited. I was deceived, but I was conceited way back in the first grade. And this is what conceit will do to you. In our conceit, uh, we know that there's ordinariness in us, but we're living with alternate facts, right? An alternate reality. Conceited people are so fixated on themselves, they want glory, they want to feel important, but they end up provoking and envying others. That's what we do. And that brings us to the second barrier, provoking. So provoke. When we provoke, you place yourself in a position of superiority. You're looking down on someone as if they are inferior to you. So, and when we do that to people who we perceive are weaker than us. This is a superiority complex. When we provoke, we challenge, we even loathe those who we think are less secure in themselves than and we are. And this really is our biggest problem with provoking other, other people. If we loathe them, if we look down on them, we're going to ignore them, which means, but code word, uh, you're going to not connect with them, which in other words is saying, I'm not going to be in community with someone that, that I look down on. It's just they're beneath me. Why would I want to fellowship with those kinds of people? And I think this just leads to the truth. A lot of us walk around feeling superior, looking down on other people in society. And that prevents us from being in true community with the people that God would have us be in community with. We look down on people because of uh, our economic standing. We look down on people because of our social skills. We look down on people because of our education level. We look down on people perhaps because of our looks, and dare I say it, because of our race. 
Don't we do that? Yes, we do. We look down on other people, and that forms a barrier to us being in community. That brings us to the third barrier, envying. If provoking is looking up at, um, looking down on someone, then envying is looking, at, looking up at someone and, and wanting what they have. All right? It's, it's I'm inferior this time, and that person is over me, and I want, every, I want to be just like them. Inferiority complex. Um, we envy people when we perceive uh, that they are more secure than us. And here's the, here's the thing. Most of us have done this already today. In, in fact, we do this at church. So you come in, you got a large gathering of people, and immediately you see somebody that's like, man, that dude is looking good today. I wonder if people think they, he looks better than I do. Or you see a couple and you say, man, they look really cute together. I wonder if people think that my wife and I look as cute as they do. Or somebody drives up in a nice car and it's like, dang, that's nice. I wish I had a car like that. I wonder how much money they make. Or perhaps you walk in and everybody's like looking good, dressing good, talking good. It's like, these people are perfect. But I really, I wonder if there's anybody that's as jacked up as I am on the inside. That's envy. And we do that, unfortunately, all the time. We compare ourselves. We, we feel good about it as long as someone doesn't come up and, and prove that they are better than us in a particular area. And as long as they are a little bit beneath, then we're okay with it. That's envy. And when we envy people, you're not going to connect with them. Why? Because you're competitors. I, I mean, how many of you are in true community with those that you're competing with in life? And so here's what Paul is telling us in, chapter tw- in, in verse 26. He's saying, don't look down on people, don't provoke them. He's saying, don't look up at people, perceiving them to be uh, high and lofty, because you'll envy them. Rather, you should, he's encouraging us to be in community. Now, Paul is talking to the church at Galatia, and, and this is an interesting church, uh, and he, he's con- exhorting them to connect with each other. Um, the church at Galatia was plagued with, uh, religious heresy. There's a lot of people telling the church at Galatia, you're supposed to follow the law. This is what the law says. Do this. And they were, uh, they were actually uh, supporting legalism, right? And much like any church, the church at Galatia had, you know, multiple levels of dysfunction. So Paul is saying uh, in this letter to them, but also by extension to us, he's saying, here's the cure for, um, for all the things that, that are plaguing you. Here's a cure for bad doctrine, but also bad lifestyle. It's community. Get in community so you can check each other. And so that's what he does throughout the remainder of chapter 6. He basically is talking to us about the disciplines and the rhythms of community. And the first thing that he says about the church being in community is that we need to be a community of restoration. Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here's the picture. Um, you, you're in a, a, a group and you're familiar with, with everybody and you become aware that somebody else has sinned. If you're a parent, it could be as simple as your child lying, but it could be as, as serious and egregious as uh, a young lady getting pregnant out of wedlock, a spouse committing adultery. Somebody has done something in our church and everybody hears, out, hears about it. And everybody's talking about it because that's what happens in church. 
And so here's Paul. He's stepping in and says, so how, how does the community deal with that? And the thing that you should notice in this verse is um, Paul is not spending a lot of time talking about the person that sinned. He doesn't say, you know what, grab him, let's put him in a circle in the middle, and let's stone him to death. He's not saying that. He's not saying point out their sin and berate them until they feel condemned. He's not saying that. What is he spending most of his time talking about? He's talking to us, the community of faith. And he's saying, come around that person and restore them. First, he says, brothers. The, 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 the literal reading here is brothers and, and, and sisters. And so his emphasis, is, his emphasis is on not the one who sins, but those of us who should come alongside and help that person who has sinned. And so when he says brothers and sisters, he's, he's talking to us that as Christians, we're supposed to be a family for each other. God has made us brothers and sisters in faith. And many times, that is a, a bond that's stronger than the bond that your natural family would have. So brothers and sisters, don't stone the guy. Don't condemn him. Come around him and restore him. And this brings up a good point. You know, a lot of times we think that, I mean, we're so individualistic in our culture, in our society, that we forget that the New Testament, the, the, the letters that the apostles wrote, they were written not to individuals as if Paul penned a letter for each Christian and then sent it to them as a personal exhortation. He sent these to churches. And so he sent this to one church. They would have gathered on the Lord's Day, and one of the elders of the church would have read this as an exhortation from an apostle to them, and they would have applied it. And that's the way it would have been um, it, it, would, it, would, it would have been received. The tragic thing in our culture is that we're so individualistic, so homogenized that uh, we're off on ourselves. And even if we're doing spiritual, religious things, sometimes we complain it's not working. And I would tell you, some of the times it's not working because you're doing it all by yourself. You're all alone. God has called us to be Christians. And I, I can't say there's no such thing as a Christian who's by themselves, but that's not what God intended for you. He didn't intend for you to be alone, just like Adam. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to do the Christian thing, you've got to be known. You've got to be connected. You, you need to be in the family and community. So brothers, skip a few words, you who are spiritual, he's saying restoration is the responsibility of those who are spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean that you're, uh, that, that you're a super Christian. It means that you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, God has given you the Holy Spirit. All right? It's, it's you're living by the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.25. You're an ordinary Christian. You're ordinary. Brothers, you who are spiritual, restore him. This is important. Don't gossip about it because you're just introducing sin. Don't go tell the pastor because you're just gossiping to the pastor. Restore him. Get back. Get that person back on the right track. Restore is the Greek word means that means to make adequate. It's a medical term um, that's used here to, for, for setting a dislocated bone back in place. For those of you that have had a, a bone break anywhere in your body, definitely if it was dislocated. Remember how much pain you went through, not just breaking the bone, but when the orthopedic surgeon had to reset it and do all that they did to to, to sort of to heal you? I mean, why is, why is he putting you through all that pain? Is it because he's trying to be masochistic and, and trying, you know, deliberately trying to hurt you? No, that little bit of pain of resetting your bone eventually leads 
to you being healed. That's what he's trying to do. It's the same thing with restoration. God is saying, brothers, sisters, if you see someone caught up in a sin, gather around them. Those of you who are spiritual, you've got to be spiritual to be able to do this. Restore them. Restore means to confront in, in a loving way with a goal to prompt heart change. Now, Paul doesn't actually tell us how restoration is, I mean, what it's supposed to look like or how we're supposed to do it other than saying do it gently. And the word there means to do it with humility. And here's why I think he said if you're going to um, confront somebody and restore them after they've committed some egregious sin, you need to have humility with it. It's because there but for the grace of God go I. I don't know if you've realized this, realized this in your life yet, but all of us are just, you know, one inch away from committing the sin that you say you never, you never do. I just see it all the time. I see it in my own life. I see it in, I see it in your lives. And so here's, here's an application of this. You know, sometimes uh, when we read Paul's words here that we're supposed to restore someone with gentleness, we can assume that we're just supposed to be nice and loving, that we're supposed to say nice words, be kind, don't push the person too hard. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think, I mean, when, you, when someone is caught in a sin, what that literally means is they have been overtaken. It means you're entangled. And the picture here is the same thing that we see of Israel, 400 years in slavery, not being able to free themselves. What they need? They need a miracle. They need God to come in and actually like, do what they can't do to, to, to pull themselves out of the thing that they subjected themselves to. And that's the picture here. So if you know someone that's caught in a sin that they just can't say stop and, and it stops. And some of us are caught in those kind of habitual sins that we can't stop. There's, there's sexual sin and addictions. Uh, there's substance abuse, chronic lying, manipulation, eating disorders. And if you get caught in those type of sins, and I'm, I'm just naming the big ones. There's, there's plenty more. Then you need someone to come alongside with you to to confront you lovingly and to walk alongside with you so that you can, I mean, just be snatched out of the hell that you're in. That's what Paul is saying to us. That person needs more than just a smile and a hug, right? They need, they need to be loved, but they need to be loved pro- probably with, with some words, maybe with some hard words. This is what Proverbs says. If you're reading uh, along with us in, uh, in our Bible reading for the month of Psalms and Proverbs, you come across this verse yesterday. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So here's the wisdom of these verses. It is actually better for your friend to hurt you than for your enemy to kiss you. We want to have people around us in community who are courageous enough, who know us well enough, and who are tough enough in their spiritual resolve that when they see us being entangled in a sin, I mean, heck, if, if they see us, see us just in any sin, that they would lovingly confront us and say the words that they need to say so that we would be woken up and that, the, that God, the Holy Spirit, would, would do what only he can do convict us of sin, and then the process of repentance and redemption and restoration begins. That's what should be happening in a community. So we need to become a community of restoration, but we also need to become a community of self-critics. Look at the latter half of verse 1. Paul says, keep watch on yourselves lest you be tempted. Paul says, watch yourself. 
keep watch um, means to, to spy out. It's as if you got hired by the FBI, and they didn't give you a gun, but they gave you some binoculars, and they told you to go stake somebody out. And, and you didn't really understand, and so you took your binoculars, and instead of staking out the person that you're supposed to be looking at, you turn it in on yourself to be more introspective. That's what he's saying. Look at your own life. Look at your own self. Paul is saying, make sure that before you rush to help people deal with their sin, that, that you don't sin. And then in these next few verses, verse 3 through 5, Paul stays on that same theme of, of keeping watch over our own lives, of our own souls. Um, it's a warning, basically, because pride can, pride can set in. And if we aren't careful, then... Um, we will let pride overtake us. We'll condemn someone that doesn't deserve our condemnation uh, when, when it's better for us to be self-critics. So look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And so Paul is arguing if you think too much of yourself, you're going to have too much self-importance to care about somebody that actually needs you to come alongside them and bear a burden. God has called you in community to be to be a servant, all right, to serve those who are around you. And if you're only thinking about yourself, you're going to be deceived, and you're not going to do the very thing God wants you to do. This is a warning against spiritual pride. If you are prideful, you're not likely going to serve those people that you're supposed to be in community with. And in verse 4, Paul really is completing his same thought from verse 1. What did he say in verse 1? He said, watch out. I mean, watch yourself. Watch yourself lest you be tempted in the same way uh, as the person that's caught in a temptation. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Paul is saying we should measure ourselves against ourselves. Get your eyes off your neighbor. Don't let you, don't fret because your neighbor's being successful. Right. Don't boast because your neighbor's being has has fallen or is failing in a certain area. Get your eyes off of them. And instead, we should look into our own hearts. We should be self-critical. We should critique ourselves. Keep watch over our own lives. And then we get to verse five. Um, For each will have to bear his own load. Now, I haven't said this yet. We're going to get to this in a second. Here's here's the the big overall theme of, of this section of Paul's letter. He's talking about that in community, here's the one thing, here's, here's the major thing that we do. We bear one another's burdens. That's what we should be doing uh, as a community of faith, really as, as any community, being willing to bear one another's burdens. Now, if you're reading verse 5 right, then you, you already know this verse seems to be contradicting what it says in, in verse 2. We haven't got to verse 2. We'll get there in a second. All right, so which one is it? Am I supposed to come alongside someone that has a heavy load, a heavy weight, and help them carry that weight? Or in community, am I supposed to just take care of myself? Everybody has their own load to bear. The answer is both. And so if we're in community, we are supposed to help those who have a burden to carry that weight. But the Greek word here for load is, is common for like a man pack, a man bag. Think of a backpack. All right, so I bring a backpack, one of my old army backpacks, um, into worship every day, and I have you know, all the stuff, computers and like change of clothes and my Bible and some other things that we need for the service. And I don't usually need help bringing, I mean, it's like four, four or five pounds. As I get older, I might need help. But right now, I can still handle it. I got a little bit of muscle in my arm. I bring it in, and it's, it's my responsibility. All right? And that's what God is saying. That's what Paul is saying. 
You know, sometimes there are things in life that are our responsibility, that God has put that on your own shoulders for you to, you know, for you to do. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be things that God has put, uh, put on you to help you mature, things that build strength, things that cause you to grow. It could be things that God does in your life to, to humble you, to, to build perseverance, to build character, to build faith and hope. And so we're responsible for our own lives. We're actually responsible for our own sin. No one else is responsible for the sin in your life but you. And there are, in community, times that all of us need a little bit of assistance. And that's what community is for. And we should be willing to do that. But once you're able to carry your own load, guess what you're supposed to do? Pick up your backpack and let's move on out. Why? Because there will be an opportunity for you to serve those who can't, can't do that for themselves. And that brings us to our last point. Paul says the church is supposed to be a community of burden bearers. And we back up and look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is a, what is a burden? What's a burden for you? Generically, a burden is any tremendous hardship. It's a difficulty. It's a problem that you're experiencing in life. But I would tell you, definitely through my years in the Army, but more, I mean, more so now as a pastor, uh, what I've learned is what's a burden for me might not be a burden for you. There, uh, there are some things that you're going through that are just like absolutely, I mean, it's, it's not going to like bog you down. They're simple things. You don't need anybody help. But I may go through that same thing that you're going through, and it may just like put me under. And so uh, this is respecting to the person. But a, li- uh, a burden can literally be a lot of things. It can be sickness or unemployment. It can be loss of a loved one. It could be loneliness, rejection, being a single parent, financial strain. And so what Paul is is trying to do here for us is tell us the practical ways that a Christian should relate to everybody else in community. But more importantly, he's helping us to, to, to understand the concept of love. And so if we are a community of faith, then, then here's the most important thing that should be shown forth from how we interact with each other. We want to do what the law says. And, and what's the perfect fulfill, fulfillment of the law? Jesus said it best, that we're supposed to love each other. Look at John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Galatians 5, 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we are a community of burden bearers, then we should bear one another's burdens because that's the perfect fulfillment of what God has told us to do in the law. And if we're doing that, we have really done all that God would expect for us to do. And so the clear assumption in this text is that we're supposed to bear each other's burdens, that all of us have burdens and that we aren't supposed to bear them alone. There are opportunities that we should give in community for, uh, to know what's going on in people's lives to the degree that we know when they're, when they're having a difficult time, they're going through a hardship, and they need someone to come alongside them and help them walk through it. The unfortunate reality is, I mean, I mean we try to do this alone, don't we? Have you ever have a bur- had a burden and you're too embarrassed to tell people about it? or you're too prideful to let other people know, and, and, and just it's, it's hard as it's hard can be, 
but you still don't want anybody to know, and you're suffering, and you're suffering, and you're suffering, and you just like, you're, you limp through it because you, you want to. You don't want anybody to know. And that really is why this is a spiritual discipline. It takes effort. It takes submission. It takes being vulnerable. And, I mean, that's hard for us to do. Human friendship and fellowship, people helping people, bearing one another's burdens, this is a part of God's purpose for us as his people. That's what, that's what this community is about. That's what community is about. It's about us being open enough that we can both help people who need to be helped, but also receive help when we need it. Do we really need help all the time? No. But should we be prepared to help when someone needs it? Absolutely. Because this is how God works. God is not going to swoop down with a bunch of angels and just like scoop, you know, scoop you up out of whatever difficulty you're in. He's going to send people that you know. God works through people. God speaks through people to, to bring restoration to your life. And so let me finish up by sort of making this practical. I mean, what am I saying? What, what do we need to do to, to execute the discipline of, of the spiritual discipline of community? Here's the first one, and this is a no-brainer. Get in community. If you're, if you're a Christian, then the Bible exhorts you to be in community with other people. Not every once in a while to do it habitually, to expose yourself to people so that you're loving, sowing, giving, growing, maturing, being vulnerable, going through life's ups and downs, crying and laughing, enjoying kids, all that stuff. But you're not doing it alone. You're doing it together. Get in community. Be a brother or sister. That's what God has called you. That's part of your identity. You're in the family, whether you know it or not, if you're a Christian. Be a brother or sister. Don't be a consumer or a critic. You know what a consumer or a critic is? A consumer is someone, I mean, you go into Starbucks, you got your app, I'm going to get my drink, I'm going to look around, I'm going to leave. That's, that's a consumer. And we do that in church sometimes. We come in, get some coffee, <laughs> I listen to some good worship music, get my sermon on, and I'll leave, right? But, but worse than a consumer is a critic. And a critic does this. They come in, they do all that, the consumer stuff, and then they complain, about the, they complain about the stuff that went on. Well, did you see the way they treated me? They didn't even say hey to me when I walked through the door. If you're a Christian, here, here's the thing. And this is, this is my plea for you as a pastor. You both need, but you also deserve to be under care. And that, that's, that's, those are pastoral words. But being under care means that you are known that you're loved, and that you're prayed for. And that, that's my job, and I want to do that. But sometimes I'm not allowed to do that because if you don't want it, you don't get it. But that's what God wants you to have. You need it, but you also deserve it. And being in community affords you the opportunity to be cared for. Get plugged in. Your life is important to the life of somebody else. Here's another aspect of community. If we're actually incomplete without each other, then there's somebody in, in our community, just our small community, that they're not getting what they need because you're not there in the midst of it. Uh, we'll talk about this next week, but in life, God, in the Christian life, God has called us a body. 
Some of us are ahead. There's a couple of y'all that are ears, eyes, mouth. A couple of y'all are hands and feet, legs, toes, pinky toe. All right. And when one of those, think about it. I just cut off my pinky. My pinky, like life is going to be awful. It's going to hurt more. It's going to hurt. But I need, I don't even know what I need it for, but I need it because God gave it to me. It's the same thing when one of you is not there. We're incomplete without you. You need us, but we need you. Hear that? It's, it's reciprocal. You need us, but we need you. Here's the second thing. Um, this is not the second thing. I got more on that one. Um, many people experience church like this. They feel very much alone. They, they actually come into church. They're doing it regularly, but they feel alone. And I think that's a travesty. It would be a travesty for, for me to avail myself to the very institution that God himself has created, that I would feel affection and love and friendship and fellowship, and that I come and I don't get that. And there are a few of you here that actually are here but feel alone. And, and, and I want to help you with that. I want you to be loved and accepted in the church community that you, that you have chosen to be a part of and perhaps that God has called you to be a part of. And so here's my challenge for you. I mean, church is hard. I, I, I'll agree with that. Church is messy because people are messy. But this is what God has called you to. If you're a Christian, God has called you to this, and he's also called you into the community. And it's going to take a little bit of risk from you. What's the risk? Open yourself up. Get to know some people. Find a place to serve. We're going to talk about that next week. And then take the risk of being known, being known by the people that are here. Because they need you, but you also need them. Position yourself so that you are involved in the community, because that will make church worthwhile. Here's the second thing, and I'll close with this. Bear your own load. This is the note Paul ended on, and I didn't make much of it. It's not a mistake that in the midst of talking about community, Paul talks about rescuing someone from from a sin that they can't rescue themselves from. This is an important point. Paul tells us that we're supposed to have our backpack on, that we're supposed to carry it for ourselves, and that does mean that we are responsible for our own lives, and you are actually are responsible for your own sin. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes we find ourselves in, in situations and positions where we are stuck in a sin and we can't get ourselves out. And that's what the community of faith is for. Again, it's like Egypt. It's like Israel in Egypt. They need a miracle of God. There are some of you that you're never going to overcome the the sin that you're in unless you get the help of community. And and I say this to people I pastor all the time, I counsel. Everybody doesn't need to know your sin. Some people can't even handle your sin. So I'm not telling you to open yourself up so that everybody knows everything about you What I am saying is some of you have habitual sins going on for which you won't see any victory or freedom unless that that you 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 can overcome your shame, that you can get help pastorally, but also that God will bring you to a point where you're willing to get help from the people that God has already put in your life. That's what community is for. Let me close with this. How, how is all this possible? So if I'm not in community, how, how can I get in community? How, how can I make this happen? Back, back to verse 25. We read this verse at the very beginning. Here's what Paul says for us. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with 
the Spirit. The only way that we can make this happen is by living, living the gospel. God gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is that thing in us that, that puts us all on equal ground, tears down the barriers of male and female and, and, and race and socioeconomic background, all those things that naturally divides us, and it draws us to each other as, as the Holy Spirit is drawing us to God. And so what I'm asking you to do as I, as I close with this thought is, what is the Holy Spirit telling you to do in regards to uh, your experience in community? Listen to the Holy Spirit. He's telling you to do something that you may not be doing, or he's telling you to do more of what you're already doing. But it's not enough just to hear the Holy Spirit. We actually have to obey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for this community. What a, uh, we have a great community here, not just community groups. This is a great community of faith, people who love and sow and serve in this young church, and they do it faithfully. God, I'm praying for those who are on the fringes of our church. Uh, I, I pray that uh, there would be something uh, that would move them to, to understand what your word is calling them to and an agreement in their hearts prompted by the Spirit to, to be in community, to, to be known, but also uh, avail themselves to know other people. God, uh, sometimes um, those things that we're going through, I mean, we can't escape them unless we have the community of faith. So I'm praying, especially for those people who are entrapped in a sin, and uh, they've prayed and they've tried to stop whatever they're doing, and they've done it to no success. I, I pray that you would give them courage to, to confess, uh, to repent, but also uh, to, to seek help, to seek help in community. Not just blurting out all their sins to everyone, but to strategically uh, ask for help, to let someone else bear their burden. Because when we do that, what we've done is we've fulfilled the law. We've loved each other. Help us to be a church that loves each other. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.